0: Welcome to The Groundbreaking Guide to Third-Party and Supply Chain Risk Management, How Exiger's Trades Framework Revolutionizes Third-Party Risk Management and Supply Chain Risk Management in 2021 and Beyond. In this special six-part podcast series sponsored by Exiger on the Trades Framework, we will look at how the Trades Framework is a cutting-edge but actionable blueprint to build a modern third-party and supply chain risk management program. Over the next six episodes, I will be speaking with Exeger's experts as we go through each layer of the trades framework at the tactical, program, and strategic levels. We will put a spotlight on transparency into your current state with Skylar Chai and Tim Stone, discuss risk methodology with Teresa Kim and Matt Hayden. Assess current risks with Laura Tolchin and Peter Jackson. Determine mitigations with Kerry Wibben and Aaron Narva. Evaluate the trades framework uplift with Brandon Daniels and Josh Teal, And end with Brandon Daniels and Erica Peters, who will give a review of supplier monitoring and close out with how government and critical industries are leading the charge using the trades framework to outpace threats and vulnerabilities while minimizing third-party risk management gaps. In this episode four, we look at determining mitigations with Aaron Narva, Senior Vice President, Head of Corporate Markets, and Kerry Whibben, Senior Vice President, Exeger Federal Solutions. I know you will enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for our continued exploration of the trades framework. In this episode, we take up the letter D for determine mitigations. Uh, Aaron, if I could start with you, um, who is the framework for and how it can it be used?
1: Sure. Um, thanks, Tom. So the next critical element of the trades framework is around determining the mitigation of risk. So what actions or steps can and should be taken uh, to reach a point where the specific risk of a supplier or a supply chain element are well enough understood and controlled to, to move forward with a business relationship. Uh, determining mitigations is definitely a delicate balance of all the preceding elements of the trade trades framework. Uh, it's about understanding the specific risk, uh, the specific impacts that risks can have on the specific parts of your, your third-party population or your supply chain. Uh, it's about taking a risk-based approach. And it's about understanding your operational bandwidth <clears throat> to take specific mitigation actions, and knowing when to just accept the minimal risk and move on for the operational benefit. There are many cases uh, that we talk about where an identified risk will not justify any level of mitigation. Um, how companies perform mitigation is really dependent on their maturity level uh, and the specific risks they faced. So, at the end, there's as we always hear with this, there's no one size fits all. Um, The the trades framework, uh, I think, gives every risk management and compliance professional a plan, uh, regardless of where they're starting, for managing their third party and supply chain risk uh, and moving up the SCRIM SCRM maturity model curve. As you know, Tom, risk management and compliance professionals seek out and rely on frameworks. We love this sort of uh, map. Right. Um, And and when they're strategic and clearly laid out, um, it's going to be much better because with such limited resources and time to manage competing priorities, uh, plans and maps and and strategy um, and supporting data can be used to get that executive stakeholder buy in. Right. To drive those decisions, those budget decisions, to invest in critical compliance and risk management tool. Uh, With that quick uh, overview, uh, Carrie, why don't I kick it over to you to introduce the D.
2: Great. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron and Tom. Great to, great to talk with you again. Thanks for, for hosting this podcast. Um, So the D I, it's actually my favorite letter in the trades framework. um, And I'll, I'll tell you why it's really, you know, as a risk management professional, this, this is really where you get to the heart of the matter um, from a supply chain risk management standpoint. In my perspective, um, this this element is really about problem solving and taking specific actions um, to remediate risks. Ultimately, with the goal of driving a supply chain ecosystem that's secure and resilient. But then the tricky part, right, is doing that without compromising operational efficiency. So, you know, at this point in the framework, you've got your organization's objectives and risk thresholds pretty well established, and you're really now considering what risks are you willing to accept, what risks can you transfer or segregate or mitigate in some other way, and then what are those risks that bubble up to the top that you really need to immediately take action on or remove or just somehow avoid altogether. So that's you know that's kind of the spectrum of mitigation opt- options. Of course, a lot of nuance within that that spectrum. Um, but this is a step. You know, I think this is a step in the process. The D, where you're really separating the wheat from the chaff. And just to emphasize something, you know, Aaron said, and I hear him talk about often, um, this this really has got to be a risk-based approach. There is not a a single size that will fit all situations, right? So um, it really has to be a very broad spectrum of mitigations uh, that you bring to bear uh, to set forth your, your plan. You have to factor in timelines and milestones, um, and, um, you know, this this is not a science. This is messy work, Tom, as you know, mitigating risk is not for the faint of heart. Um, it really requires, uh, in my opinion, a high degree of both critical and creative thinking and solutioning. And and again, that's why I, I actually think it's one of the most challenging elements of, of supply chain risk management overall, um, really, I guess, because of two primary things. One the complexity and, and oftentimes the ambiguity and, and really the constantly evolving nature of these very vast and complex sub-tier supplier ecosystems. And then two, the secondary and tertiary consequences of risk management work, which inevitably, you know, includes impacts to upstream and downstream costs, to impacts to schedule, and, and again, impacts to operations, which is, I think, the, the most tricky part to, to kind of navigate. Um, So that's just a quick overview, and and happy to go into more detail on specific examples, but that's
0: the D. Sure. Before we get get into a little more detail, uh, let me pitch a question to one or both of you all, because in listening to this sort of opening section on this episode, I really got the sense that determining mitigation works very much on the tactical level, and we may go into the weeds on that, but Aaron, I also got the sense that this is a way for a compliance officer or a supply chain professional or, or whoever is using this to talk to management about the strategic view and, more importantly, cost. You talked about operational bandwidth and you talked about uh, the cost of, of some of these, but management and even the board of directors may want to know what are our risks, how are we mitigate, and equally importantly, what are our costs. Uh, would that be a fair assessment?
1: I, I think definitely. I mean – when you look at there, there, there's two really big costs in these in these risk programs that we see on the compliance side, right? There's identifying the risk, right? How do we how do we go and identify risk? How do we surface the things that we need to talk about? Um, and that's usually that's usually fairly straightforward, right? I think people have their tools, um, right? They can sort of assume that it's going to be a certain amount of um, uh, risk that they're going to identify, right? And, and have to and have to discuss. I think. The challenging and unknown piece of this is the mitigation, right? So you 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 never sure what steps you're going to have to take to mitigate risk. Um, I think you can plan for it. Um, you can you can uh, you can set aside uh, resources for it. But I think at the end of the day, um, the nature of the supply chain and the nature of of, of actually getting to do business with with a counterparty, um, you know, the steps that you have to take to do that um, can be unexpectedly big. Um, I think there are tools now to to get to a place where you can do that quickly and um, and and have more predictability there. Uh, but if you have a if you have a supplier, for example, um, that presents a certain type of risk, um, and you you must do business with that supplier, right? It may involve actually a site visit, for example. Um, it may involve uh, different kinds of interviews. It may involve document productions from them, and and that can take time and that can cost money. Um, so I think. You know, When you're justifying this to management, I think it's appropriate to have a real framework for how you're going to approach mitigation, but also message that sort of unknown piece of it, um, the fact that in order to move forward with business, um, the cost can sometimes be unpredictable.
0: Kerry, with your background in the government, perhaps uh, this question might be uh, better directed to you, but uh, Aaron, if, if you want to jump in, please do so. Can um, you talk about doing work with government clients? to determine mitigations on programs uh, you're supporting.
2: Yeah, I could talk all day on that, but I I know we don't have all day. So let me give just um, some examples um, of how we're we're working with our government and our defense industrial-based clients, which is a very encouraging trend line to see the uptake and the willingness to invest in supply chain risk management tools such as ours for our largest defense and aerospace companies. Um, It's a very recent trend line and we're very excited about it. It's something in my government life, in my past, I tried very hard to get this, uh, this sort of transition and recognition in uh, these major primes and OEMs that support these multi-billion-dollar contracts and deliver our warfighting capabilities to recognize that they had to take ownership of this problem, and we're finally seeing that happen. Tom, I, again, I could talk for days on that, but let me just just kind of answer your question with a couple examples. So, we are helping. Um, our clients really, you know, implement this traits framework and, and move up uh, something that might have been referenced before in, in the series, the supply chain risk management maturity model as quickly as possible. So um, the, you know, the type of work that we're doing um, for the federal federal government defense industrial base, it, it's really focused on America's most critical supply chains. And so we're doing um, sup- deep supply chain illuminations ranging from Critical infrastructure sectors. You know there are 16 of them designated um, uh, and, and overseen by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, but you know the U.S. bulk power system. We have actually illuminated down to I think the fourth tier. The U.S. the entire U.S. bulk power system over 6,000 entities and conduct conducted deep diligence and risk assessed and made that available to our federal clients. Um, tremendous insight from that, as you can imagine. Um, We've done illuminations on critical technology sectors, right? Uh, like microelectronics and critical minerals, rare earth elements. Um, we do a lot of work for for department, the Department of Defense on critical acquisition programs and illuminating uh, down to the you know third, fourth, fifth tier. We also do you know critical supply uh, supply chain analysis on critical parts or componentry, such as circuit cards or diodes. Um, we do a lot of hardware and software supply chain mapping and vulnerability assessments, thanks, you know, SolarWinds or or CASIA, um, just very recent, obviously. Um so that that's really what we do, right? That's that's kind of the just in a in a very uh, very quick summary uh, the type of work that we do and the out, really the output of all of this supply chain illumination work provides very rich and actionable intelligence and and again because we're going beyond the surface level we're going deep into that sub tier ecosystem to the third fourth fifth tier um, and and when you do diligence and gather intelligence at that level Tom. Suddenly, risk—you know—such as adversarial connections, foreign investment, and in, and in other foreign indicators, um, cybersecurity risk, supply chain fragility—that um, all of these risks that were lurking below the surface all along are suddenly made apparent. And that can be overwhelming for our clients. Um, So it's it's really, you know, this depth of exhaustive supply chain transparency that historically has just not been available or known um, either by the federal government or by the defense industrial base. That's what we are now enabling um, the awareness around. And, you know, it, 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 it like I said, it's overwhelming for them. And what we were seeing as a trend is that our clients, our federal clients primarily, we're kind of getting stuck at that stage one of our maturity model. So it goes from stage zero reactive posture to stage one awakened posture. Okay, now we know what's below the surface and there's some bad stuff, but what do we do about it, right? So, you know, when when we kind of peeled back the onion on that, we tried to understand why are they not moving to that stage two, that stage three, progressive, proactive, and then eventually where they all wanna get is to that highly anticipatory posture. Um, they just, we weren't, we weren't, they weren't getting there. Um, and so, and you won't be surprised by this, but the biggest reason is that there was just a, a complete, uh, lack of adequate resourcing, uh, to take the work that we were doing to do you know the early in the earlier stages of trades, the transparency and making sure they were aware of what was going on below the surface level. And and there just weren't resources available, you know, across the federal our federal clients to get into the dirty work of determining what mitigation measures to take and then really developing that that actionable plan. and it's fascinating, I'm sure, for you to hear this and, and see how this translates across markets, right, and sectors, To see what we're discussing here, in, you know, with our federal clients, the defense industrial base, and FIs and corporates. I think there's a common void, you know, of, of adequate resources in risk management professionals to effectively manage these risks at the tactical level, program level, or even strategic level. Um, so we are doing everyone. you know this the best Tom we can Fox to help again. we're Thank working in, in partnership we for this episode I hope uh, you join us tomorrow for episode four, where we take up um, determining
0: mitigations trying to coordinate efforts to make better Narva use of existing and resources, resources
2: and and drive special common tools and solutions, um, such as our our idea framework uh, tool, a uh, to help identify and assess the and then again most importantly, determine what mitigations are appropriate and hope you will visit with us again
0: to really help strengthen and
2: drive a much more resilient Sure, on the trade framework. You can check out the
0: show chains. notes where um, I link to So, you know, trade we're doing this again by clearly
2: aligning risk insights from our illumination work um, to specific uh, regulatory compliance and legal requirements such as fars and DFARS clauses in our acquisition contracts. That's one side of the spectrum. So, translating all the work that we, all the risk insights that we identify, mapping it to that contract language, helping our contracts officers understand where they actually now have coverage, right, in the contractual obligations um, that are set forth in the contract to actually, you know, address these issues and require a response from a mitigation standpoint from that prime or from from those sub-tier suppliers, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is really using our risk insights and then helping to generate, you know, referrals for intelligence and counterintelligence and law enforcement agencies where appropriate. Um, based on the threat indicators and the foreign intelligence connections that we often see below that surface level. Um, So again, just helping them separate the wheat from the chaff and and really drive that highly actionable output.
0: Kerry, one of the reasons I enjoy visiting with you so much is of course your uh, background in government. And and the reason uh, I really appreciate Exeger in this space is it's so cutting edge but what I see when I hear you talk is really, how can that this apply to the private sector and U.S. public and private corporations? So, Aaron, perhaps if I could ask you, what are you doing with your corporate clients around determining mitigations on compliance programs and supply chain risk management?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of what Kerry said is is super relevant, right, for, for our compliance clients, too. I think... Um, you know the the criticality of some of the the national security items that that Carrie spoke about is driving um, is driving some of this faster uh, in the DIB, for example, and obviously in in, in government um, for compliance. Uh, you know I think that there there's certainly a desire to understand you know supply chain on the compliance side. I think. In for the compliance officer in a, in a non-dim corporate, right, I think we're we're still sort of watching the supply chain risk management and um, you know the expanding world of risks cohere around maybe it's around the compliance officer. We sort of think so, but it's also around procurement. It's also around some other groups, um, and I think and I think that's emerging. What I think uh, what I think is 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 nice for our our compliance officers is that as this uh, supply chain uh, dealing with the supply chain and digging deep sort of starts to evolve, um, the compliance officers are really armed with a, with sort of an, an existing set of, of options or tools that they can utilize for mitigation. For example, a lot of our clients use third-party outreach as a form of mitigation. Um, whether it's questionnaires or recorded call, um, third parties can provide uh, proof of their controls. Um, and again, this is, you know, historically it's been around corruption, uh, right? But, Obviously there's sustainability there too, there's environmental, there's cyber risk, um, right? Uh, and those, document, those documents can prove policies and procedures, they can prove certifications. Um, some clients, as I said before, uh, will even perform on-site audit in instances of very high risk. Um, that during COVID has moved to a lot of video calls, um, which I think is variably effective, but also it is effective, and I think we're seeing clients use that more. Um, right, is a form of mitigation, relatively low cost, but relatively intense form of mitigation for high risk, Uh, right? A third form of mitigation is actually just learning more, right? So deeper levels of diligence all the way up to and including discrete reputational increase uh, in instances where it is justified, right? That can definitely help reveal more of the story. Uh, For example, you know, you might identify um, a corruption risk on a third party um, that's publicly known right? Um, but when you start to dig in, when you talk to that company, uh, those companies that have had those issues in the past are, are often less risky uh, from that perspective, right? Because they've had to deal with these issues. Uh, contractual clauses, refresh periods, and risk committees, these are also frequently a part of the risk mitigation approach. Uh, I think at the end of the day, our clients' approaches to mitigation are as varied as their business models uh, and, and the risks that they face. Um, and for compliance, uh, you know, they need to access as many mitigation tools as possible. And again, they, they sort of have these things at their fingertips. So as the scope of risk that they're responsible for expands, right, as we talk about the, the ESG element of this, as we talk about you know, reputational risk is a major, major issue, um, the pressure to mitigate these risks and do so quickly grows.
0: So I wanted to focus on uh, due diligence. And by way of background, I've been in this space about 15 years. Due diligence has always been ubiquitous, a ubiquitous term, a ubiquitous requirement. It is one thing I think everyone's aware of, yet here in 2021, in many ways, it's more important than ever. So, I wanted to ask, uh, have you done any mapping of due diligence findings for a client? Carrie, you talked about levels of subsuppliers, but how can the mapping of due diligence be such a useful tool going forward?
2: Yeah, um, I, I would love to kind of pick up. I, I did ha- I did briefly mention um one of the examples, I'm happy to go into more detail on that. Um, so, just because I think it really helps put a fine point, you know, if we, we kind of talk about just an example. So on um, one of the critical acquisition programs um, we've done, and actually it's this is this is turning into a, a pilot program. It's really fascinating um, and it's helping shape DOD uh, policy, potentially helping shape regulation and those FARs and DFARS clauses and, and eventually even uh, legislation around the space. So um so for for one program uh, acquisition program we found you know, I think it was around a dozen uh, data intelligence findings that were pretty significant high risk um, and they really you know presented serious issues for the program for you know from a from a security and then just stability uh, perspective and and more importantly um, we picked up on threat indicators that indicated um, there was a serious threat from a foreign intelligence standpoint to the associated critical technology associated with this program over the long term. So um, we, you know, just again, to help, you know, turn this into something more actionable, we actually took an extra step in this case where um, we mapped all of the findings to those very, we actually got the contract. We broke it out in sub at every clause, every FARs and DFARS clause that in some way tied to supply chain to kind of help the contracts officer, uh, you know, just be able to, to do the translation of what our work and our risk insights into their deep into their sub tier supply chain and, and understand and translate. What does this mean from a contract standpoint? Right. Um, which then drives everything else. So, um, so we, we took that contract and uh, pulled it apart and, and then bucketed our risk insights um, to, to those uh, regulatory requirements and, and those clauses. Um, and so this really, really has helped us to break down um, and, and prioritize uh, a lot of the, the next steps from a mitigation standpoint. Um, so the, you know the, the fact that we now were able to sort of bridge the gap and have a risk mitigation conversation with those government officials with the government program manager, the government contracts officer, and now the the pilot part and the really cool part, in my opinion, this is this is the future. Is we are looping in that prime that that who owns that contract, who's ultimately responsible for delivering this this acquisition this this capability to the warfighter, um, and we are coordinating, you know, to to basically determine the right incentive structure to get that prime contractor to, you know, to understand which of these FAR clauses and DFARS clauses actually flow down to the sub tier suppliers. What, are they willing to do if they're not threatened by this, but they actually are embraced as a partner and everybody's got a clear set of common objectives and the government is willing to pay for this mitigation work for this prime contractor to actually address these issues. So it's not some sunk cost or overhead cost that they have to absorb. There's a bucket of billable hours that they can charge. And eventually where this is going, Tom, if you ask me, to have a crystal ball for a second, I think we're well on the way to supply chain risk management becoming an allowable cost when, when these contractors bid uh, for this work, and it will be rewarded. And if you have invested in a supply chain risk management program and tools, and you can demonstrate proficiency against a set of standards, which are now being developed, that's where we're headed. And you will that will give you a competitive advantage over your uh, your competition in in future acquisitions. So you know it really boils down to. I think I referenced in our last podcast we did. There's a report called Deliver Uncompromised that we worked when I was in the government to put out. And it's this is all sort of now where the rubbers meeting the road against those incentives that are set out in that Deliver Uncompromised report. The combination of carrots and sticks. How do you get industry right? So we are on the outside looking in. The government is actually on the outside looking in only. We will only be able to get to a meaningful result on mitigation to bring it back to the D if these companies are willing to to embrace this uh, and not be threatened by it and actually make an investment and partner and agree to information share with the government and with providers like us who are trying to expose and illuminate even to them what's going on in their own sub-tier supplier ecosystem. Um, And we do this all in partnership. So that's where we're headed. And, and again, this is so exciting and fascinating because we really are helping sh- to shape the landscape, the regulatory, the, the legislative landscape in this space real time as it's happening. And it's just, it's just so rewarding and it's such an amazing opportunity and, and obviously something I have a lot of passion for. So um, it's really fun it, We we really love our jobs and it's just, it's just gonna be so cool to see where we are even a year from now with how quickly the space is evolving.
0: Harriet, Aaron, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time on this episode. Uh, from my end, I could probably talk to you guys for hours, but uh, perhaps on another podcast. So uh, I wanted to thank you both and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation.
2: Great. Thanks, thank
0: you, Tom. Tom. Thanks a lot. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you will join us tomorrow where we take up Evaluate Framework Uplift with Brandon Daniels and Josh Steele this special six-part podcast series on the Trades Framework has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will visit with us again tomorrow for our next episode. If you'd like more information on the Trades Framework, you can check out the show notes where I link to the Trade Framework in each and every episode this week.